From Brennan to the Boca Chill, from Lamy to La Push, and from the lordly Sawduck to lovely Duckabush. From Samish to Sammamish, Suquamish to Quillacine, the climate is so friendly, it's a land that's evergreen. Hello, and welcome to the History of the Evergreen State podcast. I'm your host, John C., and thank you for joining me today for episode 65, The Doomed Steamship Clallam. Before I jump into today's episode, I'd like to apologize for the delay in the release of this by a day. As most of you know, the Seattle area has had the worst air quality in the world over the past couple of days, and due to that thick wildfire smoke, it left my voice and throat pretty shot. But I'm doing better now that the smoke is slowly going away. I just can't believe that it's the middle of October and we are still dealing with this problem. It never used to be like this when I was growing up. Anyways, missing one episode out of 65 isn't bad, and I hope to not have to do this again. Travel by water has always carried an element of risk. Accidents, human error, harsh weather, and actions during wartime are among the things that could send a ship to the depths of the sea never to be seen again. While some nautical disasters, such as the sinking of the Titanic, have continued to capture the popular imagination for decades, now well over a century ago, but others, some of which involved a significant loss of life, have faded from the memory of most Washingtonians. The story I'm going to tell you today can easily be considered one such tale and is quite a tragedy. The SS Clallam was built in 1902 and early 1903 in Tacoma by the E.W. Heath shipyards for the cost of $80,000, which is about $2.6 million in spending power today. The Clallam weighed 657 tons, was 168 feet long, and was a wooden-hulled steamship. Aboard, she had nearly four dozen elegant staterooms and had a top cruising speed of 13 knots. The Clallam was launched on the 15th of April 1903 and this is when you could say things started to get a little weird. Two incidents occurred that day in the eyes of suspicious mariners which is basically most if not all mariners as a cursed ship. This first incident marked the ship jinxed and happened when the man responsible for raising the ensign over the clallum for the first time ended up hauling it up the mainmast upside down. You may be wondering, well, this sounds innocuous enough, but in fact is still to this day considered to be a very bad sign for a ship. An upside ensign, which in this instance means a flag or standard, especially a military or naval one indicating nationality, is the universal maritime signal for distress. The second event happened during the ceremony of its launching. Hazel L. Behan, who was chosen by residents of Clallam County to christen this new ship named for their great county. Hazel was the 14-year-old daughter of Frank Behan, who was a meteorologist that was stationed at the Signal Corps weather station out on Tatouche Island. When the blocks keeping the vessel from the water were knocked away, the vessel began to slide too quickly down the skids so that Hazel Behan completely missed breaking the bottle of champagne across the bow for good luck. Many Puget Sound mariners from this point on thought that the ship was cursed to sink. The Clallam was owned and operated by the Puget Sound Navigation Company, which was also known as the Black Ball Line. She was part of the huge fleet of passenger and freight ships that ran all along the waters of Puget Sound and into the Strait of Juan de Fuca, transporting goods and people across western Washington. 
commissioned on the 3rd of July 1903 as the newest steamer of the Mosquito Fleet, as well as being the fastest and most modern of the fleet when she first went into operation. The Clallam was put right away on the Seattle to Victoria, B.C. via Port Townsend route. The steamer was licensed to carry up to 250 passengers in freight or 500 passengers on excursions without any freight. She carried six large lifeboats, 350 life preservers, 25 fire buckets, four life buoys, six axes, and six emergency lanterns. The pilot and master of the Clallam was Captain George Roberts, who was actually one of the men who had formed the Black Ball Line, and he had been navigating the inland waters of Puget Sound for over 30 years. The 8th of January, 1904, a Friday, saw the Puget Sound area being buffeted by strong winds from early in the morning that day until late into the evening, and was actually the most severe storm experienced by that part of the Evergreen State for a couple months. On the inland waters of Puget Sound, winds from the southwest were howling at up to 36 miles an hour, and at Tatouche Island, near the entrance to the Strait of Juan de Fuca, gusts were over 60 miles an hour, which were also accompanied by moderate accumulations of snow and heavy rainfall where it wasn't snowing. But everyone thought of the Clallam as new and fast, and she was considered to be seaworthy in every sense of the word. Plus, to her benefit, the Clallam was running with the wind in the following sea. That same morning, another very strange incident occurred involving the Clallam and a sheep. It was very common at the time for steamers of the Black Ball Line to carry sheep bound to either Victoria or Port Townsend. A trained bell sheep would always lead the herd aboard the steamers, and on that January 8th morning, the bell sheep that normally made the voyage refused to board the Clallam, perhaps in some unknown way, knowing what was going to unfold later that day. The Bell Sheep would be left behind at Pier 1 at the foot of Yesler Street when the steamer left Seattle at 8.30 that morning. The voyage up to Port Townsend took about three hours for the Clallam, which left plenty of time for passengers to disembark or board the ship for Victoria and also allowed for enough time for the transfer of freight. The remaining crew members set to work readying for departure at noon to Victoria, British Columbia. Fortunately, on this day the Clallam was carrying an unusually small number of passengers, which prevented this disaster from being a whole lot worse. If it was fully booked, I'd be talking very similar numbers to that aboard the Pacific back in 1875. I covered that last October in episode 11, and that doomed steamer had roughly 300 people aboard. Anyways, other than the weather that blustery January day, the voyage from Seattle was a normal, uneventful one, and when the Clallam departed from Port Townsend, everything seemed normal about the steamer. However, after she rounded Point Wilson inside of the guns of Fort Worden and entered the Strait of Juan de Fuca, the Clallam immediately encountered winds nearing hurricane force coming from the Pacific Ocean with very rough water on the strait. The Clallam fought against these deteriorating conditions until she was within sight of Clover Point and the relative safety that Victoria Harbor offered, which was only about three miles away after fighting her way through 35 miles of open water. Captain Roberts was alerted by Chief Engineer Scott Delaney at 2 p.m. that the vessel had begun to take on water, resulting in the flooding of her engine room. A broken porthole on the starboard side seemed to be the offending culprit, since it was located three feet above the waterline when the waters were calm, though the seas that day were quite violent. Bilge pumps were doing what they could once they were started up, and some crew members ended up plugging the broken porthole with a wad of blanket shoved in the broken hole and was held in place by nailed-on boards across the opening, which stopped the ongoing rush of seawater. 
Despite these two damage control options being enacted, they were not enough to stop the water and it continued to flood the engine room, with the chief engineer unable to locate the source of the leak on numerous attempts. To temporarily stop the problem from spreading to the rest of the steamer, watertight compartments were sealed off. The existing flooding was, however, in the worst possible place for a steamship, its engine and boiler room. This meant that rather quickly the coal bunkers were submerged and spilled coal into the bilge and completely jammed the bilge pumps, and the water just kept rising more rapidly as the minutes ticked by. Just an hour after first being alerted of the problem, Captain Roberts was alerted at 3 p.m. that the rising waters in the engine room had in fact reached and extinguished the fires of the boilers. The Clallam was, after all, a steamship, so without steam, she was completely dead in the water and quickly began to wallow in the rough waters. In an effort to keep the Clallam afloat, the crew began to man the hand pumps, then they set about the task of setting the stay and jib sails, which would manage to give the stranded steamer a little degree of maneuverability. Now here is when Captain Roberts makes a fateful and rather stupid decision. Fearing that the Clallam was beginning to break apart in the rough seas, he ordered the crew to begin launching the three lee-side lifeboats because it was still daylight and Discovery Island was actually within view only about two miles away and the captain thought this was their best chance of survival. Unfortunately, the first lifeboat, which was under the command of Captain Thomas Lawrence, who himself was a riverboat captain up in the Yukon, was filled with women and children of course, along with four members of the crew. As the lifeboat was being lowered down, it struck the guardrail on the side of the clallum and spilled all of its occupants into the sea where they rapidly drowned. The second lifeboat, which was loaded with the rest of the women and children and several male passengers, made it past the rail and was lowered to the water safely. This boat went only about 600 feet before a huge wave completely swamped it and washed its occupants overboard, where they too would drown in the churning waters off Victoria, B.C. The third lifeboat fared no better than the first when it was being lowered and upended every passenger aboard it into the sea after its forward fall became tangled. From these three lifeboats, not a single survivor remained, which sadly meant that every single woman and child that were aboard this doomed steamer perished. Those still aboard were forced to watch helplessly as their wives and children perished under the waves. In all, 45 of the 56 people aboard the lifeboats were passengers, with 17 women and officially 4 children, but many historians believe that the number of children could have been much higher given the fact that children under a certain age were free and were therefore not counted in the total passengers. Ironically, sparing further loss of life was the fact that the lifeboats on the Clallam's weather side could not be launched and ended up being held in reserve. Though there was not much cargo to be found on deck, First Officer George Donnie started chucking anything he could find over the guardrails in order to keep the Clallam from listing. The remaining passengers and crew members began to try to bail out the flooded compartments with fire buckets, but it was a losing effort. To make matters even worse for the people remaining aboard the Clallam, signal distress flares were nowhere to be found aboard the Clallam, even though they were required by maritime law. Mainly, the ship was still afloat because of the fact that the airtight compartments that were earlier sealed off were relatively dry. However, water continued to fill the hold, and although the wind ended up blowing her stay sails completely to shreds, her jib sail kept her bow mostly before the wind. This resulted in the Clallam being blown northeast towards San Juan Island and Smith Island. Edward Blackwood was the agent of the Puget Sound Navigation Company in Victoria and he began to grow increasingly worried about the now overdue steamship. 
At about 3.45 that afternoon, he went over to Clover Point looking for the late steamship and actually spotted the foundering ship about four miles off Victoria with her sails in distress, an unusual sight for a steamer that normally didn't use any sails. Mr. Blackwood spotted the Clallam's distress flags flying and quickly went about the task of finding another steamship or tugboat to help out the disabled steamer, but none were available and there were no steamships even currently at harbor in Victoria. As night came, the storm intensified, coming in from the west with gale force winds and pounding surf. At about 5 p.m. that evening, Mr. Blackwood was finally able to get a hold of an agent of the Canadian Pacific Railway in Sydney, British Columbia, who then sent the steamship Iroquois out into the stormy night to search for and assist the disabled Clallam. Despite sailing around Harrow Strait, San Juan Island, and Smith Island, the Iroquois returned to Sydney at 11 p.m. with only minor storm damage to show for her troubles. Receiving a dispatch at about 5.30 p.m. of the plight of the Clallam, Captain John Libby, the general manager of the Puget Sound Tugboat Company, immediately dispatched the seagoing tug Richard Holyoke, captained by Robert Hall from Port Townsend, and the Sea Lion, which was coming from Seattle and commanded by Captain Charles C. Manter. Finally, at about 10.35 that night, the Richard Holyoke discovered the foundering Clallam drifting midway between San Juan and Smith Islands. The tug managed to pass the Clallam a towing hawser, which is basically just a thicker rope intended mainly for towing other vessels if you're not familiar with maritime terms. Don't worry though, I had to look this one up in my research, though I had heard the term before, I just didn't know what it meant. Captain Roberts then requested to be towed to the nearest port, and Captain Hall ended up choosing that of Port Townsend because it was as close as Victoria Harbor to their current position, and with the wind direction made it a much more favorable tow for the tug. Failing to mention to the captain of the Richard Holyoke that his ship was in fact sinking, not just leaking like Captain Roberts of the Clallam originally told the crew and captain of their rescue tug. The Sea Lion, which was coming up from Seattle, arrived on the scene at about 1 a.m. Saturday morning, just over a six-hour journey to assist the Clallam. But when the newly arriving tug pulled alongside the foundering Clallam, they were greeted by shouts from Captain Roberts that his ship was sinking and to tell the captain of the Richard Holyoke to let go of the hoeing tosser unless they wanted their tug to go down with the Clallam too. He then told his men that were below deck to come on up and strap on life belts and prepare for a rescue. But as soon as the towing hawser from the Richard Holyoke slackened just slightly, the Clallam veered and went over on her port beam with the stern starting to sink. The first officer then crawled to the boat deck and launched a lifeboat by hacking with an axe at the line securing it to the deck. The other men aboard quickly went to the steamer's exposed side and clung desperately to the starboard rail until huge waves washed them away. Within 15 minutes of the sea lion's arrival onto the scene, the Clallam settled and then went under stern first, sinking down into over 65 fathoms of water just 8 miles from Point Wilson and its lighthouse. The Clallam began to break apart as it went down, with the main deck, upper works, and the pilot house separating entirely from the hole and drifting away. The tugboats immediately went into rescue mode and came about, lowered their lifeboats, and started fishing out every survivor that they could find. Several men ended up climbing onto the life raft that the first officer launched, and first officer Donnie then went on to save Captain Roberts from drowning. If only the women and children could have been so lucky. After throwing out lifelines, the sea lion hauled aboard a dozen survivors while seven men scrambled onto the floating pilot house and clung on for dear life until they were rescued by the tugs. Thanks to the efforts of the crew aboard the two tugboats, 36 survivors were rescued, which included 22 crewmen and 14 passengers. 
These heroic tugs continued to search the area of the wreck until dawn, but found no other survivors. The tugboats then sailed to Port Townsend, where from there the survivors were brought to Seattle by an Alaska Steamship Company steamer. I get that steamship and other maritime travel was usually the most reliable and sometimes only form of transportation in those early days of the Evergreen State, but if I had just survived a shipwreck that over half aboard did not, I don't know if I would be excited to board another steamer anytime soon. On the 12th of January, 1904, the steamer Princess Beatrice, which was owned by the Canadian Pacific Railway, spotted a massive amount of wreckage on both Darcy and Trial Islands that prompted him to send a smaller boat ashore to investigate. Washed ashore, the crew found the entire main deck of the doomed Clallam, which was complete with a fully intact pilot house and upper works. The crew of the Princess Beatrice further searched the wreckage, then went on to search the rest of the beaches of the two islands for any victims, but no remains were ever discovered. However, one body was found wearing a life belt and was found floating off Clover Point near Victoria Harbor. Mr. Blackwood, who was the agent in Victoria for the Black Ball Line, hired the BC Salvage Company and its steamer Maud to tow whatever wreckage it could to Esquimalt, British Columbia. Most of the wreckage that was recovered over the following several weeks would be sold at auction in Victoria on the 15th of March, 1904, bringing in nearly $300. The entire main deck and upper works would be purchased by the owners of the Lyceum Theater in Victoria for a whopping $25. They intended to put it on display in Victoria, but despite at least an hour of internet and book sleuthing, the only information pertaining to what happened with these relics of the Clallam led me only to find in the Filson blog that Fred Pointer IV wrote in January of 2020 that by June of 1904, the hulk of the Clallam was abandoned at Oak Bay. On the 18th of January, 1904, just a little over a week after the disaster of the Clallam, the United States Marine Inspection Service under Captains Whitney and Turner, who, if you listen to episode 11, were also in charge of that investigation, commenced an investigation into how the Clallam met its fate. Since the ship is technically sitting in over 65 fathoms of water, the inspectors had to rely upon the testimony from officers, members of the crew, and dozens of passengers to help reconstruct the disaster and figure out exactly what happened. This investigation would conclude just 16 days later on the 3rd of February, and the official report would be released on the 13th of that month. The investigators concluded that the actual reason the ship was taking on water was because open bilge and seacocks were being flooded, in case you're unfamiliar with the term seacock, and no, it's not a disparagement for the Seahawks, but it is a valve in an opening through a ship's hull below or near the waterline, especially one connecting a ship's engine cooling system to the sea. Now that you know that little bit of maritime lingo, makes a little more sense now why the engine room continued to flood despite the fact that the crew fixed the broken porthole window which they thought was causing the water to rush in. Some of the crew during the investigation even admitted that they thought there were a few leaks in the Clallam's hull that contributed to the extinguishing of the boiler's fires, but the investigators disagreed with their assertion. It was also determined during the investigation and later laid out in their report that while the Richard Holyoke tugboat was towing the Clallam, massive waves smashed out all the windows of the dining room and galley on, on the main deck, which then led to the complete filling of the hold and other compartments, causing the Clallam to founder and then sink to the depths of the Strait of Juan de Fuca. Officers of the ship and blackball line officials were questioned vigorously by the inspectors as to why the Clallam had no signal flares or rockets aboard, which is required by maritime law and might have been able to bring aid to the disabled steamer faster than the tugboats that came hours later. 
The investigation also found Chief Engineer Scott A. Delaney was responsible for leaving the cocks open when the bilge pumps were fouled up and then quit working, which directly led to the sinking of the ship. Due to this, Delaney's marine engineer's license would be revoked for life by the U.S. Marine Inspection Board. Captain Roberts received his fair share of blame and criticism for his stupid decisions that day. The inspectors heavily criticized the captain for launching lifeboats without an officer from the ship aboard, in addition to him not requesting to be towed to the closest shelter on the lee side of Lopez Island. They also leveled heavy criticism of him for not notifying either tugboat captain that the Clallam was not merely just leaking but in fact full-on sinking. Due to the investigators' findings, Captain Roberts's master's and pilot's license would only be suspended for a year. This led the press around British Columbia to dub the investigation a sham and vehemently campaign for both officers to be charged with manslaughter. They also decried the fact that Delaney was made a scapegoat for the entire disaster while Captain Roberts was practically given a slap on the wrist. Delaney immediately appealed the decision to the U.S. Marine Inspection Service down in San Francisco, claiming that there was new evidence that would exonerate him of any wrongdoing in regards to his actions aboard the Clallam, but the board upheld their decision. Captain Roberts ended up going into seclusion at his small Seattle home, saying that maybe in fact he had misjudged the Clallam's situation, but he had tried to do his best and that was all that he could do. On the 11th of February, 1904, a coroner's inquest was adjourned in Victoria, British Columbia with the purpose of investigating the circumstances involved in only the deaths of the passengers of the lifeboats that drowned in Canadian waters. Just eight days later, on the 19th of February, the coroner's jury declared that Captain Roberts was guilty of manslaughter by gross negligence. However, an arrest warrant for the captain of the doomed Clallam would never be issued. Jurors ended up censoring Chief Engineer Delaney for being negligent and incompetent in his duties, but also at the same time the jury determined that the Clallam was not in a seaworthy condition, having numerous defective deadlights, a defective rudder, and improperly equipped lifeboats. On the day of the disaster, the Clallam was sailing from Port Townsend to Victoria, British Columbia. Seven of the nine officers aboard that day perished, in addition to 15 of the 22 crewmen who were simply on the steamer trying to earn a living to support themselves and their families. Of the 61 total passengers aboard the Clallam that fateful day, only 14 men survived. 17 women and officially four children, but that number is unknown given that younger, toddler, and infant children weren't charged a fare and so were not on the Clallam's official passenger manifesto. Despite extensive searches of the islands and shorelines of the area, both by ship and afoot, half of the 56 victims would never be recovered. Of the over 80 people that boarded the ship that day that they thought was safe, only 36 people walked away from that doomed steamship called the Clallam. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a 5-star review and don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss a new episode. Leaving that 5-star review really does help the show to grow and expand its audience, so any help that you can give in that regard would be greatly appreciated. Sources for this episode include the H.W. McCurdy Maritime History of the Pacific Northwest, both Ships of the Inland Sea and Pacific Steamboats by Gordon R. Newell, the Seattle Post-Intelligencer, the Seattle Times, Shipwreckworld.com, the Filson Blog, HistoryLink.org, and the San Juan Historical Museum. Thank you for listening to Episode 65, The Doomed Steamship Clallam. Episode 66 will be released next week. A special thanks goes out to Al Hirsch for providing the music for the podcast. 
If you have any questions about the show, please contact History of the Evergreen State Pod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to another episode of the History of the Evergreen State Podcast, and until next time, I'm your host, John C. Go Kraken. There's peace on the Skokomish, on the Queets and on the Hull. There's calm on the Nisqually, born of ageless ice and snow. A land that nature loves so much, she stays the whole year round. I trade a royal palace for a shack on Puget Sound. There's Chimicum and Stillicum, where spouts the gooey duck. The singing still Guamish and the swirling skookum chuck. And Moclips and Copalis, where the razor clams abound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound.